Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. You know the show where I sit down with amazing humans, unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams and career, hobby, and life. The guest today is Sarah Stein Greenberg. She's the executive director of the D School at Stanford. If you're wondering what the D School is, that is the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design, very famous design school where they bring in all kinds of people from numerous disciplines and they work to underpin what design does across industries on a global scale. She's got a new book that we talk about called Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. It's out now. I highly recommend this conversation. If it's some, if you're interested in solving things like, how do I see things in a new way? How do I work well with others? What are some ways that I can make sense of the, I've got these great insights, but how do I articulate them in my project, whether that's a creative project, a business project, a design project, or otherwise, how to put your work out there and how to slow down and focus something I know we all need. So I'm going to get out of the way and again, invite you to enjoy this conversation with yours truly and Sarah Stein Greenberg. Take it from here. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Look, after a successful photography career and directing and shooting all over the world with the top brands, I started to feel a tug in a new direction. What if I could share everything I learned across more than a decade and help other creators and entrepreneurs navigate their own journeys more effectively? I kept pulling on this thread around lifelong learning and in 2009, I started Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. Creators and entrepreneurs, hobbyists to full-time professionals have all leveled up with their careers and their lives through taking courses on Creative Live. And to be fair, they also make this show happen. They make it possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, I encourage you to check it out right now. This is where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photography, video, art, design, music, and audio craft and maker classes, plus the ability to make a living and a life in any one or all of those disciplines. Now, since day one, Creative Live have been committed to sharing free content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's always something there playing amongst our 10,000 hours of content. The real win is the subscription. Now, you all know that I'm a huge believer in the power of habits, and you've probably heard me talk on the show about how small daily choices add up to design and create the life that we actually live. Now, Creative Live, as a sponsor here in this announcement, wants you to know that they have a new powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That is the subscription that I was just talking about. How can you get the Creator Pass? And with the Creator Pass, you can find new areas to develop your skills. You don't have to worry about just buying one class. This allows you to improve your craft, consider making money if you want to with whatever it is that you're trying to do, to pull on your own threads of curiosity and explore. If you're ready to invest in yourself and take the reins for this one precious life that you've got, then subscribing to Creative Live is designed to push you in this direction. Sign up for Creative Live today. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chase, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. Well, of course, uh, it would be um, incomplete without me congratulating you on the new book, which uh, 
for those who do not know, Creative Acts for Curious People, an amazing book. I have it open in front of me here on my computer. And uh, But I don't want to start there. I want to start at the beginning. I want to start with you realizing that design, that creativity is uh, not just a nice to have, but a critical thing to have in uh, in career, in hobby, and most importantly, in our life. So take us back to when you started realizing this in your life. Wow. I mean, how far back should I go? At right? Infinity. Like, go all the way back. <laughs> I can go all the way back. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say like I was raised in a, in a house where I think there was a lot of creativity that was being celebrated. And I, I, I had a very vivid imagination as a kid and I kind of lived in a lot of ways in those worlds of like stories and that, you know, the adventures you can have as a child when there, there aren't sort of fixed constraints and rules. Um, and also maybe like growing up in a pre-digital age was, was there, there weren't as many distractions perhaps. Um, and I remember, you know, just like the joy of that huge box of Legos that my parents had gotten at a yard sale that had no instructions and had no kind of rules attached and anything you could make or anything you could imagine you could build. And so I, I think that that really is a core part of my fabric um, from a very early age. I'll also say, you know, my dad is an incredible maker and builder and carpenter and he just was, is somebody who's totally self-taught. And so um, growing up, watching him in the dark room, processing photos, I mean, just like the whole range of creative output. And I think that just really landed and made a big impression. And then it wasn't until later that I got to Stanford and found there was this whole community of people using this language called design to talk to each other about how to work collaboratively and how to solve open-ended, messy, ambiguous problems. And I realized like, oh, I found my people, right? Like they have the vocabulary that I've been sort of trying to move toward for, for the whole earlier part of my life. So we talk a lot on the show. First of all, you aware the audience here are, identify as creators, entrepreneurs, or who are people who are inspired by that. So you're it's not going to be a tough sell, but I'm curious if you could, for people, for someone who might be a doubter or new to this industry, this show, to you and your work, you talked about two things I was hoping you go deeper. One is design as a language. And then two, this idea of creativity being much larger than art as you know, something that underpins the solution to problem, the, the largest problems that our culture will ever know. So I'm wondering if you can um, share a little bit more philosophically how, you know, this, this truly is for everyone. And as a, as you talked about, it's a fabric of you, but how is design and how are design and creativity fabrics for uh, a modern era? Why, why this and why now? Yeah, this is my, you know, favorite topic of all time. So <laughs> you'll just have to stop me when it gets to be too much. Get into I the love philosophy it. of why is design important? Okay, like let's I now I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> so the, you know, what what I what I encountered when I was in grad school was this like very weird experimental unconventional place. It was it was literally in a trailer at the edge of campus. 
And it was a group of faculty and designers who had come together and were seeing the tremendous uptake of design in industry in lots of different types of problem areas. Like all of a sudden design was being used in healthcare to redesign the patient experience or design and design process, design methods were being used in business in all kinds of new ways, not just as kind of like the elegant packaging, the finishing act of a product or a service. And this group of, of faculty led by David Kelly were really interested in like, okay, what would it look like to develop an educational program that was that interdisciplinary, that had faculty from across the university and actually had, had students from all over? So all, all of a sudden I was taking, I was you know enrolled at the business school, getting my MBA, but I walked into this like trailer where the floors were sticky and the windows didn't open. And it was just like the very first place on campus that that had been had been allocated to the what's now called the D school. And there were electrical engineers in the class and there were mechanical engineers and there were MBAs like me and there were medical students and there were policy students and humanists. And it was this just like incredibly cool mix of different ways of thinking about the world. And the premise there was like design is for every one of these students. And we don't currently have a, a common language, a common way that we look at challenges together. So by working through the methods of design, you get that medical student to be able to work collaboratively with the MBA or the electrical engineer. And that group of students like looks at a set of challenges, whether it's in healthcare or education or in business in a totally new and, and fresh way. So I, I just got this like taste of if you have a process in common or a set of processes, all of a sudden it, it unlocks this potential for interdisciplinary collaboration. So that, that was one piece of it. And then the other piece was like, oh, we're not just solving problems like at the end of a product development process. We're using this to tackle some of the most ambiguous, challenging, open-ended problems in the, in the world that you can imagine problems that don't have obvious solutions. And, you know, this is, uh, I, I've seen this, you know, over the past 15 years at the D school time and again, unlock really powerful solutions. So like one example that I, I write about in the book is a group of students uh, who went on to found an organization called Nura Health. They were partnered with a, a hospital in Southern India that provides cardiac care. That hospital's model is like high quality, large scale provision of services. And the students went thinking like, oh, we're here to help design the patient flow or make this more efficient or lower cost. And then what they found using design, using observation, using interviewing, like really trying to map the systems that they were seeing and visualize them was there's a whole other set of opportunities that no one is paying attention to. And they really tuned into those and wound up launching this organization that provides health, health training to family members who are waiting in the hospital, often without a lot of uh, understanding of what to do once their beloved family member is released, and often in low, you know, very low resource settings. And this very inexpensive intervention that the students designed dramatically lowers the rate of hospital readmissions and of post-surgical complications. They found that opportunity because they were paying attention kind of beyond the boundaries of the original way the problem was being framed. And that is the capability that I think design offers to everyone is the opportunity to like notice things that are in plain sight that no one else is seeing and to 
do it by doing that, like find those opportunities that are just, they're off road. They're not what anyone else is, is seeing with conventional approaches. That's the kind of design that we teach at the D school and like the kind that I think can unlock so much potential. Well, clearly in creating as we're going to go meta here for a second, because clearly in creating the living and life for yourself that you have right now, go back to that Grammy trailer that you described earlier, you have, you know, you've come a long way. Probably the career that you had didn't exist when you showed up at the D school. And now here you are. I'm hoping if you wouldn't mind giving a little, first of all, context uh, for those who are not familiar with your work. We know that you were creative as a kid and that you dro dropped in on a uh, an MBA in Stanford and got seduced by the D school. But uh, give us some other context. How do you describe your work today? You know, and I mentioned the book, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Just talk about your profession and most importantly, your path, because clearly this moment at the when you were a graduate student um, had an impact on your trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I have one of those paths that only makes sense in retrospect, but like, if you look back, it's completely clear to me how I can connect all those dots. So like I studied history as an undergraduate, right? I love history. I love understanding the kind of the reasons why that are not obvious on the surface. And, you know, I thought like history is going to make me a good citizen, like a functioning citizen in, in today's world, but I'm not a practicing historian. That's totally fine. Right. Then I went into um, kind of nonprofit world, healthcare, advocacy. I worked at Planned Parenthood. Um, and that was really about like working at the intersection of politics and education and, and healthcare delivery. And I mean, that's one of those dots I can connect in retrospect is like, I love being at intersections. Then after, um, after Stanford, after I had kind of had this awakening and, and realization that like design was the thing that I, I wanted to do. Um, I worked at a consulting firm uh, called Monitor, and, and Monitor had made an acquisition of a design firm called Doblin. And so again, I got to work at that intersection of like management strategy and design and innovation. Um, and, and as a part of that, I spent time uh, living in India and working in India for a couple of years. So I had this amazing immersion in a culture that was not my own. And again, like working at those intersections and being kind of a, a translator between worlds, between fields, like that's, there's something there for me that is, that's part of my like creative wellspring. And today you, uh, what, what would you, if you uh, had to say your title, what your job is when you show up in the morning, where do you show up and what do you do? I mean, I currently show up, my title is executive director of the Stanford D School, but on any given day, that could mean like I'm teaching, that could mean I'm rearranging furniture, that could mean I'm doing long range strategy and, and visioning kind of like, what do we think education should look like 10 years from now? So I have probably one of the most dynamic jobs that I could imagine. And that's important for me. Like variety is just so, so critical and so stimulating. Well, you know, at Creative Live, we believe that the future is also largely self-directed. And while we support and believe deeply in things like Stanford and the D School, there's so much of this is, is again, self-initiated, self-driven, uh, exploratory in nature. And in a way, that is sort of like the, the design process you talk early in your book, which uh, drops this week called, again, this week based on when we're releasing the show, called Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, 
and lead in unconventional ways. You know, in early on, you talk about not knowing as the process of design uh, where it will take you. There's a little bit of an uncovering, a peeling of the onion, uh, perhaps a thesis, uh, but ultimately, like the students that you mentioned for the at the um, the medical environment there that that uh, on their trip to India, they discovered and ended up working in an area that was completely different than the one that they originally thought. So I want to now take that and abstract it to modern culture. What we are sitting in, as you talked about the intersection, we are at the intersection of the future of work, the future of education, the future of the internet. Uh, you sit at that intersection with the D school. We are on the cusp of a pandemic where people's lives have been completely upended, uh, economic pain, physical, literal pain, humans dying. And the future seems for many more uncertain, more uncertain now than ever before. And when I read your book, I couldn't help but feel this, um, the presence, uh, the prescience, precious, prescience, it's prescient, there we go, of the, the timeliness of this material. So I'm wondering uh, if you can share a little bit about why and how the book came into being and why it's especially timely for now. I think this is such an important topic. I mean, the, the framing that you're describing from the book about not knowing, like we are a culture that wants to know. We want to know what's in that future. We want to know what's happening tomorrow. And, you know, for good reasons, like we want to know, is my kid going back to school in person? Like, is my house going to be safe from the forest fires that are happening, you know, all around us? Um, we want to know, like, what's our, what, what's the career path? We really want to know both, both on a personal and I think a social societal level. And I, what I think is very powerful about working really in any creative field, but certainly in, in how we think about design at Stanford is that anytime you are tackling something using design you are going on a journey from not knowing to knowing. I mean, you're not really going to know everything at the end, but you're going to know a lot more than when you started. And, and I think of that as a skill in and of itself, right? The one, the mindset that accepting that not knowing is the state of things at the beginning and that you have a reliable set of tools to be able to show up anytime you are confronted with a challenge that you haven't faced before like that, I think, is the under, one of the underlying things that design is really good at teaching us. And so we, we have created an educational experience and environment at the D School that actually allows students to have that full journey. Like a lot of school, we are robbed of a lot of that journey, right? We are given a set of problems that actually the teacher knows all of the answers to. They're in the book. They're very clear. It's very textbook. It's very cookbook. And... That is not enough to help people actually practice that journey and develop the confidence that you can actually face those kinds of uncertain, ambiguous challenges in the future. And I, I think it's also interesting, the sort of like that feeling that we're all having, which is like the future is more uncertain than ever. The future is always uncertain. 
the future is actually exactly as uncertain as it always has been because it's the future and that's the nature of the future. But it feels, it feels much more complex. The rate at which our, our society and our culture and the, even the planet is changing around us is accelerating. And that creates this like level of, of anxiety, anxiety and pressure about how am I going to navigate? How am I going to get through that journey from not knowing to knowing? It used to be a shorter journey where you could show up with more expertise and actually be equipped. And now I think it's all about the opposite. It's showing up with curiosity and showing up with the ability to rapidly learn about a new context as it's unfolding and continuing to change. That is what we've just lived through in the past 18 months and are continuing to. We're now navigating this new part of the pandemic that is still uncertain, that is still unpredictable. And so these skills at the root of design, I think are also very connected to how are we going to navigate creatively through these daily challenges, these daily pressures that we're, that we're all under at the moment. Well, we're all biased and I will be the first to admit that on this show, I walk in with a certain level of bias and attach myself to concepts that are themes in the show, themes that I hear in you, the guests work. And it makes me want to highlight at the core in, in many ways of something that you said there was about le learning how to learn and this concept of meta learning and learning that part or being aware rather that part of your ability, our ability as humans, as creators, as creative people is being able to be comfortable with figuring it out while you're doing it. The concept of, you know, building the plane while you're flying it or, you know, the car while you're driving it or the boat while you're rowing it or whatever. And so it makes me want to ask, what role do you feel like learning is? And continue, if you would, to paint the picture of learning as something that's lifelong for us, because I know I know that's what you believe from reading the book. Um, just paint a picture, beyond, go beyond the D-School to help people understand this role of learning as a, as a tool in the toolkit to solve the world's biggest problems and, and simultaneously what you're going to have for dinner tonight. I mean, it's funny because there were, you know, of the many thousands of title ideas that I came up with for the book, like learning how you learn was, you know, like I kept returning to, to this core concept of learning and Ultimately, it felt like it wasn't the right title because learning has such a bad rap, right? It's like we, so this is a book about learning how to learn, but it is, that is, that is the, the side benefit. That is what you will actually uncover. And I think I would love to figure out like, how do we reframe in our culture, how we think about learning? A lot of people are, you know, learning is about what you did in school and like, thank goodness that's over. And yet our lives are continuing to change at this, at this, you know, unprecedented rate. And I want to reclaim that process of learning as something that is core to creativity because it is, right? When you are setting out in a new part of your field, when you are trying to solve a problem in an unconventional way or something that needs an unconventional solution because the old ways aren't working, the first thing you have to do is learn everything you can about that new problem. And it really helps if you have a way to, you know, kind of de-bias what you think the solutions might be and to, and to let go of what you think some of those solutions might be, to try to observe the environment or the situation through other people's eyes and lenses. 
And that's all a part of learning. And then you're absolutely right. The sort of metacognitive part of that is like, oh, am I aware that this is one of those moments where my pet idea is coming out? Or is this one of those times where I'm really allowing myself to be influenced by what other people are thinking or how other ideas might be used in new combinations? So it's like it, it operates on so many different levels. It's that attitude of like, I'm preparing to go on this journey from not knowing to knowing. It's about that um, true willingness to challenge your own assumptions and your, and your own views. And then it's like these very practical skills about observation and noticing and visualization and how you organize what you're learning along that journey so that you can spot those new opportunities. One of the things about the book that stood out to me is that there are so many exercises in the book that are very, I'll use the word clever, but they're also very simple at helping you see these biases and, um, and I think are different than so many of the ways that you talked about us learning in the past, whether that's from a textbook or I thought it was interesting that you even used the word cookbook, like one cup of this, two teaspoons of this, and then you get your thing. And uh, I wanted to share an example. So part of the way that I have learned to learn is by um, peeling back the layers of, okay, now you're, I'm going to go read this book from cover to cover, or I'm going to go watch this documentary or attend this class. And there's an exercise about uh, just take an hour of time, which I think was this is just a, such a cool exercise, and uh, take an hour of time. And just follow a thread, choose a thread, whether that's going to be, I think the examples in the book were like a color. So you're, you, you just got an hour and you say, start walking. You're like, I'm my, my journey is red. What do I know about red? And then you see red and you allow yourself to just, um, unpack the concept of redness. Now there's so many other exercises. And if this is piquing your interest right now, and you're a watcher or a listener, again, I cannot recommend this book and of course Sarah's work enough, but walk us through an idea like what happens to you when you do something without the end in mind with the example, maybe of this, you know, this journey, a one hour journey, what you do to go through that journey. And then what's something that you might, um, derive, what benefit would you derive from doing that exercise? Um, this is one of my absolute favorite, uh, assignments. So I in the love book. it. It's so awesome. <laughs> so, Have you tried it? Did you, did you go on a derive? I did. I did. I only did 30 minutes, but I'll just, I'll go to the punchline. What I found is this is actually how I have decided I am best at learning as an adult, which looks, it's very, very non-linear and yet I get a very rich experience. And the best example, again, I was halfway through this thing going, oh, this is exactly how I learn, which is, okay, I've got, say, uh, I'm reading a book topic, and in the book comes up this idea of a film, and then I'll Google some films on there, I'll find the documentary, and I'll watch a YouTube trailer of it. A YouTube trailer points to something else that's similar, and then I'll follow that. And at the end of my, you know, what started out to be 60-minute or 90-minute little session, four hours later, I've consumed like 16 videos, I've read two or three articles, I've got a book open to a certain page, I've got a bunch of, you know, highlights in there, and I've got four or five other things that I want to read on the topic. And it's very nonlinear, very comprehensive. And I think at its at, at, at arm's length feels very um, 
dilettante-ish. But when you start to think about all of those different inputs, it's ultimately a very robust, uh, you know, way of getting used to or wrapping your mind around the field of, of that particular topic. So it, it, it just 30 minutes in and I did that. I was like, okay, red is going to be my thing. And I started walking until I saw a red thing or if a car went by, which is the case, a car went by and I started just walking, following the car in the direction that it went until I saw the next red thing. So what it did to me was unlock this, oh my gosh, this, this aha about this is exactly how I learn. I allow my curiosity to go in a way that I haven't actually planned because I'm not in a room with the doors closed and my book in front of me where I can only touch the book. So maybe more than you bargained for when you asked me if I did the experience, but um, that is the experience for me and what I realized from it. Not not more than I bargained for, exactly what I hope for when okay. anyone does these kinds of assignments. I mean, okay. the, the, the degree to which people have these like powerful personal realizations about how their own minds work is extraordinary. And so the derive is this classic experience where, in, you know, we are constantly filtering the information around us and you just stop noticing what's there. So the derive is this simple premise that you follow one thing there. Another, another idea is like follow smells. And that one is like completely mind blowing for people. Cause we're so used to just queuing off the visual or follow mm -hmm. a type of sound. Yeah. I had one woman, uh, follow, um, lines recently. And she had this like almost metaphysical experience where she, by the end of it, she was like imagining lines that could be superimposed on natural contours. And she was thinking about the role of like creating lines and constraints for herself and also not paying attention to constraints and lines that other people were. I mean, it was like kind of, it sort of went in this very profound direction. So it's this prompt that just allows you to train your attention in this very intentional way. And then crazy stuff happens. And I love hearing that for you, you linked it back to this broader theme about how you learn in general, which yeah. sounds really lateral really intuitive. And then you must have developed a way that you process and bring that kind of back into something that is useful, that is directional. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people fear about that kind of less linear, more lateral type of learning is like, okay, well, if I read the 15 things and then I've bookmarked the 18 different pages, what am I doing with that? Right. And that's actually another way or another, another area where, and there are some, there are some assignments specifically to help folks who kind of don't have that orientation. Think about how do you map something that is so nonlinear? How do you bring those insights together in a way that then you can select, oh, okay, this is the direction I'm going to move. This is, this is the next step for me in my process. Yeah. I, again, using my own example uh, to avoid the risk of being like preachy, I can go back to my own experience. It, there was a, a reconciliation that happened. I, I really learned this about myself as I was observing my own meta cognition around writing my book, Creative Calling. And that's part of the reason as I was doing this exercise following Red, it brought me back there and everything became very, very clear. Uh, but it there was a little dialogue that went on and it was almost with an authoritarian sort of principled voice in my head, which was saying, but essentially sort of making an argument, how do you put this to use? How do you then organize these ideas and thoughts? 
And, you know, whether that's the patriarchy or the rules that we were raised with as a kid or more likely all of our educational experiences, which is you have to read this book from start to finish and then you go watch this movie and then you do all these things in different classes with different sets of people. And basically never are these things sort of co-combined or interlaced. And if so, it just gets too messy. We can't talk about it. But what I realized is that that was developing a framework for me that was developing sort of understanding the scope of ideas that were out there, the abstract connections that were between them. And for me, that was the, that was the, the je ne sais quoi, the thing that I didn't know was going to be there, how, you know, stoicism was related to leadership was related to Nietzsche was, you know, perfectly relevant for the topic that I wanted to write on for, you know, how to sit down and just do the work, how to be disciplined as a creator. So it, it mostly was a mapping exercise for me. And the, this fight that I had with myself that I would think I would have at other schools, but probably not at D school, which is, yeah, but what, what good is all of this? And so I'm wondering if you could make the argument for us why at the D school, this is not just tolerated, but celebrated. And also why this sounds crazy to anyone who, you know, maybe got their education in a very linear fashion, which is probably most of us. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you touched on a couple of things I, I'd love to return to. One is the idea of like the different modes of learning. Like we're, we're often focusing on like observing and listening, but much less on doing and trying. And so part of, part of the, like, we have these underdeveloped muscles as learners, right? The much more active, engaged, experimental, like, well, what if I do just walk this way and see this thing, right? And, and that framework, that, that legitimization of those other modes can be incredibly powerful. And, and I, I, in, in writing this, one of my colleagues offered this great analogy um, that, that wound up in, in one of the, the chapters in the book around, like, if you went to the gym and you only worked out the right side of your body, like your, you know, your right arm would be super built and your left arm would be puny in, in comparison. And essentially like that's what we're in, in most education. You're right. That's what we're doing. We're really emphasizing a certain number of skills and we're leaving out this, in, the, the more active engagement experimental. Let me try something and see what happens when I, when, when I put something new into the world or I, or I try a little test of something. So I think there's a, a piece of that, that like, we all need the encouragement to recognize like that framework is actually rooted in really solid thinking and research and more of education needs to embrace all of those different ways of, of learning, not just the ones that are kind of like currently embedded in, in most education. I think that would serve us very well. You're, you sound like one of those people who's like, you found your way to a type of learning that works for you. And being able to name that gives you power to say like, yeah, this is, this is something real. This is how I do it. And like, actually you naming it then helps other people realize like, oh, that's a way that I could also operate. Um, I think the, the other piece that you're describing is just this, um, you know, the embrace of the lateral, right? Like, why is it worthwhile not to have a prescribed linear approach when we're trying to solve open-ended challenges, whether it's in a design class or at home or at work or, or in society at large? And 
the, the very simple reason is like, if you start out with an idea for what you're producing and you're working on something that is open-ended or that needs a new and creative solution, it, you're just unlikely to be coming up with something that's truly new and innovative. It's your, it, all the early ideas that you have are clouded by, you know, whether it's the patriarchy, whether it's your own biases, whether it's how you grew up, whether it's absolutely well-intentioned, best thinking about how you might serve a community that hasn't actually yet taken the community's needs and history into account. So recognizing that when you start in that posture of not knowing, you have to go wide first. Mm -hmm. And that's what allows you to actually find those more powerful reframing moments where you're like, oh, I thought the problem was efficiency in this hospital, but it turns out there's this other problem that we could really serve people's families. Those students didn't frame their, their project from the kind of medical standpoint, but actually they've created something that is having profound medical impact in terms of reducing those complications. So that, that's the, the space that we all need, that permission to go wide before we converge. In design, we talk a lot about flaring and focusing or diverging and converging. And what I find super interesting is that that is really hard. The, the flaring part, the diverging part is very easy to do with a group of people. And the converging part is really hard. I think in a lot of ways, the flip is true if you're working on your own. It's harder to go broad if you're just in your own mind, right? And, and But it's a lot easier to make decisions because <laughs> it's, a, it's a committee of one. Right. So a lot of the skills that I think people need to build is especially when you're, well, really, if you're working on your own, you need help diverging. And if you're working on your, in a group, you need help converging off often. And, and some of the assignments that I, that I included in the book are specifically aimed at, at helping with those. All right. This is some jujitsu here. This is like superficial jujitsu, but now you talked about, uh, or I used my own example and you've talked about sort of the, um, conceptual, uh, example. And I'm wondering if you could use this on yourself, like reveal for us your process for writing your latest book. What was your process? You started out presumably having done these things myself years ago and you had an idea or there was a collection of ideas and how did it end up in this package that we are buying on Amazon right now as people, as people are listening to this? Well, we have two to three more hours, right? I just wanted to check <laughs> No, I'm totally kidding. So, so I mean, there's there's a couple. I, I feel like there was like a a preparation stage where I didn't even know I was writing a book, but in fact, like there are moments when I was working out these ideas that happened way before the container for the ideas was known. So I started with a with a small group of colleagues. Like we just went on a few totally self-created writing retreats. And we just started like trying to figure out what do I have to say? Like what comes out when I create the space and the time? What's what's and and then share and give feedback and kind of do a little bit of workshopping. So that was one piece of it. Um I had also like ideas that I knew were really important. Um like there's one maybe we'll get to in a minute around what's called productive struggle. I have been thinking about that for a long time, but I just hadn't found the the right vehicle for like really sitting down, doing all the research behind it, really thinking about where that connected with everything else that we're that we're teaching and doing. And so like that was this little independent thread that was like floating out 
in my brain that like needed a place to land. I'll also say in a really important part of my own process during those early retreats was um, uh, locating my inner critic. So mm. uh, my inner critic is super mean to me. She is very concerned with being like completely original and also fact checking. And she wants that to happen, like to be guaranteed before I've like written a word. So I'll be, I'll be thinking about something and she'll get concerned that like, I can't back something up with like a randomized controlled trial. And then all of a sudden she'll, she'll get in the way. So what I realized is like, oh, she cares about important things, but I need to like write down what her objections are and then put them away. And that process, which I know many other writers share of the sort of like, I think Anne Lamott describes this as like, you know, little, like little mice that she puts in a jar on a shelf. Like those, the, you have to like somehow figure out how do you um, not pretend those voices aren't there, but just figure out how to pay just the right amount of attention at the right point in your process. That was totally fast. I didn't know. I didn't know how loud she was, but she was like she got in my way until <laughs> I figured out how to deal with her. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that because I am a really visual thinker. I had to put all of the different parts and pieces and ideas that I had, all the different assignments, all the different essay ideas, the different illustration concepts, all of those pieces, I had to externalize them. So I put them all on sticky notes. I have a lo- I have a hallway between my my kitchen and my uh, bedroom and because I did I did a lot of this during the pandemic. I was this was my workspace and I just took that whole wall and basically mapped out the book and just, you know, it's like really, and then I had, then I had something that I could, that was movable, that was rearrangeable. And that allowed me to think about what is the organizing principle? Like, what is the structure? How are readers going to want to engage with this different material? And I'll say, like, I had this really big insight, which was like, I don't, I want it to be something you could read from front to back, but you never have to, right? I want the reader to be able to engage with the amount of material and the content that is right for them. So it's like, if you're somebody who really wants that language to be thinking about what's your own learning process, there is a section for you. You can find that. If you're someone who's like, hey, I want some skill development around building and making things and how do I test that and how do I ask for feedback in the right way, there's a section in there for you. And I don't want that to be dictated by like my sensibility of what you might need. I really wanted that to be something the reader could arrive at. And part of that mapping process and that visualization on the wall helped me see different ways that I could do that. I love uncorking and finding out how people finished whatever project they were. Thank you for sharing that a little more personal maybe than you thought you were getting into. But this, you know, writing about creativity and creating, I we have this in common, myself with my book, Creative Calling, and you with yours. Did you find that you got stuck at all because you were writing about creativity. I, there were times where I'm like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to have all the answers here because I'm writing about it, hoping to uncork other people, but I'm stuck. Were there any problems, any times you talk about obviously productive struggle, which in case you're looking at the book, I've got a pre-copy here and it's on page 207, uh, I think 207 or 208 rather productive struggle? Did you struggle at all when you wrote your book, especially given that it was about creating a book? Yeah, I, de- I definitely struggled. I mean, I think, you know, so, so productive struggle comes from, 
actually it comes from math education. Um, and, and before you say anything, my mom is a math teacher. And so I have a huge <laughs> admiration for deep love and affinity for people who teach math. It's like could not be more important. But it's not, you know, it's not something that a lot of people find easy. And then there's like the whole dialogue we have of like math is hard. And then people think math is hard. And so some some really interesting research is happening in math education around the reality that when you first struggle and have a hard time doing something, trying a new a new technique in math, you are actually much more likely to be able to transfer that knowledge to future problems and to retain it for, for longer periods of time. So it's more fundamental way of learning. And, and I think the same thing is true in creative work, where if it's a struggle, like you're actually stretching, you're actually growing and like learning to recognize those moments and actually be like, okay, if I'm struggling, I am working on something that is worthy of my creative talents, right? It's actually the thing that's going to set me up for the next hard, harder thing that I'm going to attempt to do. So I think, you know, for me, productive struggle is this like massively important mindset shift around like what, what to do when you are struggling. I struggled, um, I struggled in, in one place because we teach in this very in-person collaborative way. And we're asking our students to try things out even before they know whether, like why they're trying something out. And we have the ability to orchestrate sort of this, this dance almost that kind of unfolds. When something's on the page, it doesn't have that kind of like so much of that human kind of like, hey, I'm going to model this. You're going to try it out. Then we're going to debrief together. Why is this important? And I really wanted the emotion and the energy that happens every day with our students at the D school to come, to come alive. So for me, that was a big area of like, can I, can I faithfully, can I do this content justice and give the reader a, a real sense that like the, the work of, you know, cre creative work is emotional, right? There are highs and lows. You, there are times when you're going to feel really challenged and struggling and times when you're going to feel elated. And both of those are really important. They tell you important things about your own, your own self and your own process and how you work or don't work well with others. So I wanted that, that layer, the emotional content to really come through. And that was, that was a challenge. That was, that was one place that I was um, worried about. Fascinating. I want to read a, uh, opening paragraph, if I may, from, um, that productive struggle part. The first time I heard that a feeling of gloom might be a normal part of creative work, I was incredibly depressed about what I was currently producing. It was a project focused on irrigation tools for small plot farmers in Myanmar. And a week before the final presentation, I was having a full-blown crisis of confidence compared to the needs of farmers who were working for our solution or redesigning, thereby reducing the cost of water pump seemed inconsequential. A far more experienced designer named Nicole Kahn was mentoring me. Seeing my dejected attitude, she told me bluntly, I know exactly what you're feeling. I call it the trough of despair, and every designer I know relates to this feeling. So I love how you start out because I think so many times we as creators or people identify as creators, we get, you know, that inner critic, um, the, the perception of a lack of progress you know, underscores or acts as an anchor to, um, 
what we feel like is is something that's what you talked about here depressed about what you're producing so what's the most without having to read the book because it's in there but what's the most effective or the most simple prescription you might give based on your experience again here you ought to read if you're listening or watching page 208 of of uh creative acts for curious people so what's the what's the simple if you could give someone a piece of advice who has is feeling the gloom or the depression about what they are currently producing. I mean, the simplest advice is also really hard, which is show your work to someone else. And that's exactly what happened in that, in that passage that you were reading when I shared what was going on with me to Nicole she just like punctured that bubble. She, she helped me understand that was really normal, but then also she reviewed the work and she gave me good feedback. And I think a lot of times when we're feeling nervous about the quality of the work, that's when we like hold on to it most tightly. It's oh, like, yeah. well, if no one ever sees it, then no one can not like it. <laughs> right? Like, right. and that's yeah. like, you have to push past that. And, and one thing I'll say is like, that's just not easy. It's just something that you you get to when you see over and over the benefit of doing that and how like it hurts a little and it helps a lot often. And again, that's that struggle, rather that's the productive struggle, right? Is like when you're learning a lot, even if it doesn't feel very good, that's exactly the zone that you want to be in. And for me, especially if I'm early on, I have to show multiple versions right? Like my ego is too fragile to just be like, here's my baby. Like, let me tell you all about how wonderful it is. And now critique it. I, that doesn't work for me. So I have to say, Hey, I have three different ideas going here are three different options or three different versions. Can you give me some feedback on the range? And then one, they're usually not as I haven't invested my whole heart in any one of them. I'm not like really in love with one. And then the two others are just like dummy prototypes to share for feedback, but really like not getting, not waiting until the end to share that work and sharing multiple directions. That's kind of how I can carve out the emotional territory to get ready to like expose my, my unfinished work to others and, and get, and get good feedback. Then you're in a dialogue. Then you're not alone in that, you know, like toiling away without any sense of like, how is the world going to receive this? And the gap between what you are intending to express through your work and what's actually perceived by others, that's how you shrink that gap is by, is by showing it to others and seeing what they get from it. And we're just like, I think a lot of times hardwired to like hold on to it for too long in our own creative process. The sooner you get it out there and show it, the, the more you can um, almost use that person giving you feedback as a collaborator of sorts. Was this new to you, a learned behavior, or was it natural for you? This is um, this is a great example of that design vocabulary really helping me out. So I had an early in my an early stage of my career, I was a like a communications manager um, for this big project, and we were showing uh, a bunch of different uh, work that was going to be like you know how do you describe these fundraising goals and and how do you how do you actually can help a, a wide range of people get spun up about how you might work on this campaign together and i had this like weird instinct that i should go talk to those people before we finish the materials but that was not something that i was trained to do 
and it helped. Like it, it actually helped us understand and then and then design the materials more effectively. I wish I'd known to do that multiple times throughout my work. Then when I started taking classes at the D school, I realized like, oh, there is a real, there's rigor around what this process could look like. And this has now become so, you know, core to human-centered design. Like it's it's probably not news to most of your, your audience, but it's really powerful to share that unfinished work, get feedback early and do that throughout. It can also help you with like that debiasing process where you're showing it to people who are really different than you, who have a different background, a different life experience. And that is um, one of those things that I did learn formally at the D school that I'm, I'm super grateful for. Well, you, you also, you build, you know, a tribe along the way, right? You just, you're, you were being mentored by Nicole and specifically started sharing with her and you got value out of that relationship, whether she thought she was mentoring you in the classic sense, or you just end up sort of bringing along um, people you know, along your journey and they can get emotionally connected and invested and it's can help inspire you or can in turn be inspired. I just, when I, you know, listen, was listening to you say that it just conjured up so much of the, uh, the collaborative nature of, you know, nothing, despite your name being on the book, how many people were involved? Right. Yeah. I mean, there so were, I mean we, yeah, interviewed like over a hundred people and, you know, faculty and designers who've been teaching at the D school for years, kind of the question that we asked was like, what's your favorite assignment that you've ever taught or that you've ever created? Or what's the assignment where you've seen the most profound transformation with students? And so it, it wasn't ever about like, you know, what's the sort of methodical, you know, process that we're, we're trying to express. It was really about capturing that intensity of learning um, that can happen when you're, when, you're, when you're open to it. But can I ask you a question? Oh, oh. yes. The <laughs> so tables I, well, are I'm being curious, turned like, in real do, time. Well, do you have a Nicole? Like who is the person in your, in your practice when you're working on whether it's photography or anything else that you're, you're showing that kind of unfinished work to and, and getting that guidance from? Hmm. I like, let me think, how do I operate? Because it's so, it's sort of hard. It's become um, so ingrained in my process. I think I have a harem of people, of friends in each different discipline in which I feel like I operate. So in reading or in writing my book, for example, where I think I'm a proficient writer, not my natural, my, I'm more visual, uh, but I enjoy writing and I think it's an effective way of commu communicating ideas. So I shared the earliest work with my friends who I think are incredible, <laughs> incredible writers with Brene Brown or Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin. And you know, I feel very lucky to have, you know, to call those people who are of the best writers of our time in my little, but that is, that is a community that I have cultivated mostly unknowingly just because I like their ideas, who they are, represent what they represent and maybe are, you know, overlapping Venn diagrams. But, and I think of a, an entirely different group that if I've got some entrepreneurial struggles or if I'm raising money or if I'm, you know, managing, um, you know, a, a project around creative live, there's a completely different set of, of creators and entrepreneurs that I might go to. So 
I, I, that's one of the reasons I was sort of leaning into this idea of community, the role that other people have played, even though it's your name on the book, that so many people come together to help make any one thing successful. And most people, because they see a, your name on the book or your name in lights or the director's name on the film, that it was somehow a solo act. And I think you, you know, you just shared how many people you interviewed in order to create your book. It's nothing is a solo act really. Um, so I don't know. That's my, um, strategy is to have, you know, a field of experts, almost like an advisor, an unofficial, definitely unofficial. I don't advocate like formalizing any of this, but people that I, I feel have developed a rapport with where I can come to them with challenges and to, to do exactly what you're sharing. And for people out there, like what Sarah is preaching now is this process of sharing your work. Let's go back to Austin Cleon. He's been on the show many times, like this idea of sharing your work as a you know, you get ideas, you get, um, the lens of other people, you know, usually if you can have these people have more experience than you do, then you're getting the real, the real juice. Um, I don't know if that was where you're, you're aiming to take the question, but what would you, you know, what's your analysis of my answer? I mean, I think like you've, you've found your way to the, a, a version of exactly what, what I think works for many people. And the thing I keep hearing you say is like rapport. These are people you actually have a real relationship with. Yes. And I, that, that trust allows you to be vulnerable, to like share, share writing that is excellent, but that you may not yet know is excellent because it hasn't gone through that, you know, that treatment, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or a problem that neither one of you, you or your trusted advisor knows the answer to like a business strategy question, but that you can, it's like, you can feel okay, both of you being in the not knowing space together. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel like that, I mean, at the core of that is trust. And that I think, because if we think about creativity as something that you do by yourself as a solar practitioner with all that mythology around it, we're missing that piece of like, it's a, this deep interpersonal relational practice that at times, even though like, it, it may result in a piece of quote solo work. It's, it is this collaboration behind the scenes. And I think that's, I mean, it's a really beautiful description of like how humans can relate to each other and, and make, make our work better together. All right. Uh, I, I've contributed to your um, survey now, <laughs> having done so many of those interviews. I, I love the title of your book. I, I, it's to me, uh, you talked about having thousands of titles and, you know, anchoring a little bit around learning, but this idea of creative acts, not just for people, but for curious people. So following question is what, what role did that play in the title? And if we can, if you are not overwhelmed by the question, what role does curiosity play in, you know, our search for, for who we want to be or become or, or just in, in your work? I mean, to me, curiosity is just so linked to learning, like real learning happens when you are curious about something. And so the more we can kind of like raise that up and celebrate that as a, as, and it also doesn't imply you already are knowing, 
right? Yeah. It, it really says I'm about to go on this, on this journey and I'm open and I'm curious and I'm going to get filled up throughout that journey. My curiosity is going to be sated and, or, or partially at least. Um, so to me, it, it has all this, like the implication is like, it's a starting point, not the end point. And I think that that is what I was trying to express. And then I also really, I really want this book to be for anyone, regardless if you've ever heard of the D school, regardless if you see yourself as a designer. In fact, in a lot of ways, I wrote this book for people who don't yet see themselves as designers, but who are curious and who want to tackle hard challenges and who want to exercise their creative skills. And so I just, I didn't, I I wanted to create the, the door is open, right? Please walk through this door. Like I hope everyone sees themselves as a, as a curious person, but I know that not everyone already sees themselves as a creative person. And then the first, I'm, I'm sort of like backing my way to the front end of the title, but then creative acts is like, it's the action, right? It's not just the idea. It's the expression of the idea. It's the, it's the daring and the bravery to show that unfinished work, to try to make a crummy prototype, to write that first draft, and then actually to try to get it out in the world. And that same bravery is like, you know, in every one of these assignments in the book, it's like, you just have to be willing to try something a little bit different just once, right? Follow that color red around your neighborhood. Something interesting is going to happen, right? But it's a little unconventional, <laughs> So there is this sort of like posture that you have to lean into. You're you're leaning forward, you're acting. And I mean that's the that's the the thing that we all need right now, right? We have to act our way forward. There isn't there isn't a script for the times that we're living in, and we cannot just co- like continue our kind of routine behaviors. The context is changing so rapidly. So we have to act and we have to learn from our actions and then we have to quickly course correct and then we have to act again so much in the title, right? Creative, huge concept, curious, massive concept. And as you said, the, this core to true learning, I didn't understand what it meant. I understand to like to learn something for a test in school, but the first time, you know, there's something that you're truly passionate about, learn to bake a pie or to, you know, read a balance sheet of a business or, you know, when you're actually doing maybe doing that thing that I talked about where you're like watching videos and reading about it and searching something on the internet. And it just, it seemed to, you know, something just beautiful emerged and then underscoring it all with action. Again, it, the title, having written a few titles and, <laughs> or, and tried to help other people with some others, I just think it's this absolutely spectacular book. And so I would like to, there's a, uh, in my researching for our conversation today, there were a number of, you know, if extracting what people might use this book for. So I wanted to read a couple of those, share a couple, and then um, ask you a question about two of them. So some of the things that this book has the power to do, see things in a new way, help people work well with others, make sense of insights, which I thought was especially powerful tell a compelling story. We are, you know, wired for story. Work toward equity and slow down and focus. So I want to focus on, double entendre, I would like to focus on the last two and we'll cover them in, uh, in that order. 
What do you mean when you say this book can help us work toward equity? And by your book, I'm saying, you know, this is your work. This is, in many ways, this is a, a, a piece of you. And I understand you being concerned and helping people work toward equity. What do you mean? So I think that one of the exciting shifts that ha is happening in design right now is the recognition that like when you create something and you put it in the world, your design is not just the thing you put in the world, but it's the things that happen as a result. It is a sense, a, a, a greater sense of responsibility for what we put in the world and the ripples that happen as a, as a consequence. And, you know, in, in tech, for example, we're seeing all kinds of, of, of instances where, there, where there's these incredibly powerful, exciting emerging technologies, AI, synthetic biology, blockchain, and they're having lots of unpredictable effects because of the nature of, of that technology. And what we are really thinking deeply about as design educators, and I'm hearing this a lot from folks who are practicing designers, is like, how do we show up when we're putting things in the world that have those longer tail effects that we can't always predict? And that there's, a, there's some real open questions there, but just the idea that design work is not just what you make, but also what happens as a consequence, that is a really important conversation happening in design and, and, and in technology as well. I love that. The, an example that was shared with me recently was the concept of a curb cut. So what was, you know, once thought as part of the, the Americans with Disabilities Act that allowed people with wheelchairs to go up a curb at an intersection. So because of that act, we had to allocate enough dollars to cut a certain number of curbs in certain number of cities. And in doing that, what the designers of this, both philosophical and the people who are actually acting out in the field, lo and behold, cut curbs were great for people who were walking with walkers or people who had difficulty lifting their legs or baby strollers or bikes and skateboards and scooters and all these alternative methods of transportation. And again, this, this idea that with if we widen the aperture of who we can you know invite to the party how much better the party actually can be i was so inspired by that and when i was reading the the, the bits in the book about equity it just it's it's such a powerful concept um let's do the other one now this idea of slowing down and focusing so you know it's no secret that you know, Silicon Valley is known for the kind of move fast and break things idea. And I think there is a part of the way that we practice in design that has, that, that, that does help people move into action, like from reflection into action. We literally call that a bias toward action. And the idea, as we were talking about that, like, Hey, you should try small experiments. You should actually see what happens when you put your work out in the world. That is so valuable because it gets people like moving forward in a way that when you're producing something new, you literally don't know what's going to happen until you try that, that small experiment. So you could think about it forever, but unless you move into action, nothing will actually manifest. On the other hand, 
if you only are in that mode of bias toward action, you are missing the other half of the equation, which is slowing down, which is patience. And, you know, the derive that you went on, that is an exercise in patience, right? You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You've set aside the special time. You're walking in this very intentional way and paying attention to the world in a, in a different approach. And moments like, and I'll, I'll link it to the equity conversation, like the one, there's a fantastic um, uh, assignment in the book called uh, The Futures Wheel. And The Futures Wheel, uh, which I learned from uh, a futurist and designer named Lisa K. Solomon, but has its roots actually in the, in the 70s, um, is this way of thinking several degrees ahead in time. So what's the going to be, what are all the possible implications of the work that I'm doing right now, like those curb cuts or like use, oh, I've designed this new algorithm that's going to help me do X, Y, or Z. Well, what could happen as a result? Well, and then you get to the next layer. All of those nodes are an opportunity for you to ask yourself, what could happen as a result of all of those changes? Then you go to a third degree. And actually people are like pretty good about thinking about what the first degree implications might be, but this is a structure, but, but not so good at thinking even further into the future. So it, this is a just beautifully structured way to have that imagination about what the future might look like as a result of your work. So it's that, but, but you, you need some patience to do that, right? You need to say, okay, before I rush this to market, let me take the time and think about that broader, that broader impact that I'm trying to create. What could the future look like? What's my preferred future? How is the work that I'm doing related to that? And which, which direction do I want to take my project or my work as a result? And of course, if you're concerned about equity in, in any sense, in, in terms of social equity, in terms of racial equity, doing that kind of a practice with a broad and diverse group of people helps you spot all of those blind spots that you might have where you're overlooking what the consequences might be for a group of people who are, who are not like yourself and have a different, a different lived experience. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show, for writing about what I think is the most important thing. And you said that we opened the show with it, right? Why now? And, you know, creativity and cultivating um, the muscles of which you write about are more important now than ever before. So thank you so much. Congrats on the book again for those who have been listening and watching creative acts for curious people how to think create and lead in unconventional ways uh, out september 21 uh, this group the people who pay attention to the show are great at buying books to support authors so please uh, support sarah in her work get a copy now and whether it's at your local bookstore or one of the big box stores uh, and again Thank you so much for being on the show. Where would you direct people other than the book, which it's my job to help them understand where to go get that? Anywhere you'd steer them to see more about your work or would it be the D school or what, what, would, what would your recommendation or ask of the community be? Yeah, I would love to get more folks headed over to the D school site. We have a lot of really cool projects that are featured there. Um, so if you're looking to figure out like, well, what can design do? Like, how are people stretching design in all of these interesting ways? Um, there's lots of great stories and examples there. And I'll also say like, we, we provide a lot of educational opportunities for people who are not enrolled at Stanford as students. So if you're working in higher ed, if you're working in the social sector, if you're working in, in a corporate environment, like we think learning, as I've hopefully made clear, happens at all stages of life. 
And so, you know, if you're interested in, in the kinds of experiences that are, that are featured in this book, but you want a taste of the kind of the, the live version, then come check us out. And that's, uh, our, yeah, that's dschool.stanford.edu. Awesome. Sarah Stein Greenberg, thank you so much for being on the show. Congrats on the book. You've got a bunch of fans and allies over here uh, on the show, and I'm looking forward to um, seeing where this work, your next work, um, will take you and will take the world. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Chase. All right. Hey, thanks so much for listening. But And before you go, I wanted to say I really appreciate you joining me today. These conversations are the highlights of my week, and I'm always learning something new from these guests, hopefully alongside you, and you get value. Now, I know that so many of you have asked how you can support the podcast. Uh, we're sponsored by Creative Live. They foot the bill, so I don't have to put ads for uh, underwear or cheap sunglasses or anything else like that uh, at the front end of the podcast. So just a handful of thoughts here. First, the hardworking, talented crew at Creative Live would love it. We would all love it if you are a subscriber uh, to Creative Live for you know 149 bucks a year, you get access to 2,000 classes. Um, if you are not, if you want to check that out, that's at creativelive.com/slash/creatorpass, all one word. Also, importantly, sharing the takeaways and providing links to the show for any of the platforms that you've got social reach or a footprint, even if your community is small. I believe that's the best way to spread the show. Small, uh, connected, like-minded communities. Um, also, leaving a review uh, at any of the platforms where you listen to the show is huge for having it come up early in search results. So just a, a couple ways that you can help support the show. Uh, most of them are free. Uh, if you do want to check out the Creator Pass, I think you would love the subscription to Creative Live. But I just want you to know I am so grateful and um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and are, are get your news vent waiting for the next one to come out, which is probably, I don't know, tomorrow or the next day, or we will never stop. Thanks for being a part of the show.